Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. left our story, the bodies of Joanne and her baby Alex Katrinak had just been found in a remote field in Heidelberg Township, Pennsylvania. Joanne had been bludgeoned and shot in the head, and her baby left to die from exposure. Their final resting place was a stone's throw away from a horse stable, where Andy's ex-girlfriend happened to work and ride. An ex-girlfriend Andy offered up as a suspect within hours of his family going missing. An ex-girlfriend who'd get sad and depressed and call Andy for comfort. An ex-girlfriend, Joanne, had told not to call again. Is this where the statistical probabilities deviate from the stories like Chris Watts and Scott Peterson? Is this case the proverbial needle in a haystack? A statistical anomaly? Is this where an innocent man was unfairly suspected for months for a crime he didn't commit? Were Joanne and maybe Alex the victims of fatal attraction? Let's find out together. Now, let's get on with it. The Ex-Girlfriend Patricia Lynn Rohr was born January 24, 1964, in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. The youngest child of Robert Rohr and Patricia Celia Mills, Bob and Pat, as they were both known, each had children from previous marriages. Patty was their only child together. Patty didn't have very much contact with her older half-siblings. She was raised on a 100-acre farm in White House Station, New Jersey. This is where Patty's love for horses first began and where it became her lifelong passion. When Patty was 14 years old, she was disappointed to learn her family was giving up their farm life and moving to North Carolina. Patty was very unhappy with the move and wasn't used to this new suburban way of life. However, just as she began to settle in, her father was diagnosed with an aggressive form of fast-moving cancer. A few weeks after turning 15, Patty's father died, leaving her and her mother in emotional and financial turmoil. Patty's safe world had suddenly turned into chaos. At just 16 years of age, Patty decided to quit school and help her mom pay for the bills. She enrolled in nighttime extension classes, and this is where she met her first real boyfriend, Gary. Gary worked as a landscaper, and at 25 years old, was 9 years older than Patty. Despite the age differences, soon they were dating, and when Patty turned 18, they were married. Their new marriage was tumultuous, and Gary described Patty as cold and always looking for a fight. In turn, Patty would claim Gary was emotionally and physically abusive. The neighbors regularly called the police on the couple's violent arguments. Despite their unhealthy relationship, on August 19, 1982, Patty gave birth to her first child and son she named Charles. Charles only added extra stress and instability to their young marriage. Patty's mother, Pat, was also a problem for the couple. According to Gary, she coddled the baby and wouldn't allow the first-time father to spend any time with his son. However, both Patty and Gary had full-time jobs, so Pat was a necessary yet unwanted part of their daily lives. Gary described Patty as neglectful and an unfit mother to Charlie. Whether that is true or not, we'll never know, because on November 20th, 1982, at the age of just three and a half months, the same age that baby Alex died, baby Charles also died. The coroner determined it was a case of sudden infant death syndrome. Some would say Patty was never the same after losing her baby, but her ex-husband would say she was more upset when her dog died than her son. Somewhere in the middle probably lies the truth. Whatever the cause, it was the end of their short marriage. Patty and Andy Patty was looking for a fresh start when she moved in with her aunt and uncle in New Jersey. Patty began rebuilding her life with a new job selling insurance. On the weekends, she would work at her aunt and uncle's sandwich shop to help take her mind off her failed marriage and deceased baby. 
It was there, in 1983, when she would meet Andy Katrinak. Although Andy was 10 years older, they immediately hit it off. Andy was kind, considerate, and generous with praise and compliments. She was immediately taken with the handsome business owner, and they soon moved into a duplex together in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Patty found a stable nearby where she would soon work and board her horses. The stable was called the Silver Shadow Stable in Heidelberg, and it was a stone's throw to where Joanne and baby Alex would be found dead a decade later. Andy and Patty found a small fixer-upper that they hoped to flip with Andy's construction skills. However, Patty was surprised to learn that Andy's credit was so bad that he couldn't qualify for a mortgage. They bought the place anyway and put it in Patty's name. Soon after they bought the place, Patty's mom asked Patty to take over payments on their family's home in North Carolina. Now Patty had two mortgages in her name. Patty had also leased a brand new car, which she added to Andy's insurance policy. With all the extra added stress of working, paying two mortgages, and spending as much time as she could with her horses in Heidelberg, Andy and Patty's relationship began to deteriorate. Patty thought Andy was a wonderful person. There just wasn't a lot of passion. They had essentially become roommates. They were no longer sleeping together, and Patty and Andy mutually decided to end their relationship. They decided together that Patty would stay in the house in North Carolina, and Andy would continue to live in the home in Pennsylvania. Making the mortgage payments until the renovations were complete, and he and Patty could sell it and split the profits. Patty would continue to drop off her half of the mortgage and the money for her car insurance each month. Patty soon began dating and moved in with her new boyfriend who, 10 years later, Andy would offer up as a suspect in the abduction of his wife and son. Six months after that, Patty would crash her car after swerving to miss a deer. It was only then that she found out that Andy, never good with finances, had stopped making the mortgage payments. The house was in foreclosure and Patty was without a vehicle. It would take $5,000 to bring the mortgage current. Patty was livid. Andy's father offered to pay off the mortgage at the Pennsylvania property, but Patty, who was madder than hell, decided she would rather go back to the bank than allow Andy to own the property without her. It was now 1989, and Andy moved to the family-owned townhouse on Front Street, where he would later live with his wife, Joanne. After a while, Andy continued to call Patty, and they eventually remained friendly. Patty never called Andy because his credit was so poor, and he couldn't get a phone line hooked up in his name. One night after a fight with her boyfriend, the black and blue Patty showed up at Andy's door in February 1999. This was the incident where Patty's abusive boyfriend allegedly threatened to get even with Andy. Patty stayed a few days with him before moving to a battered woman's shelter. Later that year, Andy called to give her his new phone number. What he didn't tell her is that he had put the phone line in her name. They continued to keep in touch, and Patty even referred construction work to Andy from family and friends. In fact, she would even let Andy stay with her in North Carolina when he came down for work. Soon they were sleeping together again making plans for Andy to move to North Carolina. According to Patty, she broke up with Andy again, insisting they were better friends than romantic partners. They continued to stay in touch throughout the year until 1993 when Patty called and Joanne answered the phone. Patty asked to speak with Andy and he told her he had met someone and it was serious. Patty insists she was happy for Andy. She called again a few months later and Andy told her he and Joanne were married and expecting a baby. Andy alleges after he told her he was having a baby, she became moody and depressed. Patty wouldn't call again for another year when Joanne would hang up on her and ask her not to call again. Patty and Another Loser In the meantime, Patty found herself in a relationship with another loser. Patty appeared to have a type, and it came polar opposite of Andy. She began dating a man we will call Tim. Tim was an alcoholic and a heavy drug user. He was also a convicted felon with a quick temper. With a significant addiction to cocaine, Tim was a big fan of stealing other people's property. Tim was also very jealous of anyone Patty had previously dated, and this included Andy. In fact, he resented Andy the most because when he and Patty fought, she would often take out a picture of her and Andy and stare at it while crying. Patty insisted she did this not because of a longing for Andy, but because she wanted to push the buttons of an abusive crack-addicted felon boyfriend. They would often fight so hard, they took their battles to their front yard. The local police would inevitably be called, and they would describe Patty as a hardened and brutal street fighter who gave as good as she got, 
Another time, Tim and Patty got into a fight in a parking lot of a convenience store, where Tim would allege Patty tried to run him over with her truck. This was the end of their relationship. Patty began renting and managing another horse farm called Riverwood Stables. She had also started a photography business where she brought a pony to children's events and took pictures and gave rides. Patty had begun socializing again and bought a membership to a private cowboy dance club. It was here Patty met a younger Marine reservist we'll call Seth. At 22, he was 10 years younger than Patty. He was also handsome, stable, drug-free, and interested. It was about this time frame that Patty was cited by the SPCA and charged with animal cruelty. The officer who cited Patty not only knew her, but was also related to her by marriage. She accused Patty of neglect and described her horses as skin and bones. Patty insisted that Officer Eggers held a personal vendetta against her, and her horse at the time was old and blind and refused to eat. According to her, it was a matter of illness and not a matter of neglect. The judge didn't confiscate her horses, but he did demand Patty keep grain receipts and produce them upon request. By this time, Patty had given up her stable and instead pastured her dozen horses wherever she could until she could sell some of them. She put up four for sale at a horse auction. Her loser ex, Tim, offered to help her get her horses to auction. It was around that time that the police arrested both Patty and Tim for selling stolen horses. Although later, those charges would be dropped as to Patty in lieu of her cooperation against Tim. That same week, Patty would receive another court summons from Officer Eggers for animal abandonment. Seems Patty had pastured some of her horses without the landowner's consent. Her hearing was on December 12, 1994, the day Andy alleges that Joanne screamed at Patty to stop calling, and three days before she was abducted and murdered. Thanks to Tim, Patty now had a reputation, whether deserved or not, as an animal abuser, a horse thief, and a liar. Stories were spreading that Patty not only starved her animals, but also beat and whipped them too. Orders started telling horror stories about their animals under Patty's care. Believing that Patty was part of a horse-stealing ring, several owners began their own private surveillance on Patty, hoping to catch her in the act of stealing. A New Prime Suspect It was at this time that Patty, once considered someone who could make a case against her ex, had instead become the prime suspect. On April 27, 1995, the FBI showed up at Patty's house asking for another interview. Failing to confirm her alibi four months ago, now they needed to dispel it. But things had changed. Patty's attitude had changed. She was no longer eager to be helpful. She was defensive and evasive and refused to invite them inside. The FBI had already interviewed her family and friends. She knew they were insinuating that she had killed her three-month-old baby, Charlie, and murdered Joanne and baby Alex in a fit of jealousy and rage. So why would they expect her to cooperate with them? Patty eventually agreed to another interview with her mother present on May 4, 1995. Patty confirmed she had worked at the stables in Heidelberg, but denied ever being in the field where Joanne's body had been found. The interview abruptly ended when Patty's mother, Pat Chamber, accused the troopers of trying to frame her daughter. Suddenly, Patty's entire community was against her. The tides had turned, and public sentiments turned right along with them. Anyone who previously knew of Patty's love for horses and was skeptical of the rumors were now convinced Patty was an animal abuser and a murderer. Now that the authorities made it clear Patty was their number one suspect, everyone suddenly had sinister Patty stories to share. The homeowners who provided the alibi for Andy suddenly remembered Joanne calling the day before, discussing the phone call with Patty. Apparently, it wasn't just a quick, don't call back, as previously described. It upset Joanne greatly. Another person with relevant information was an 11-year-old girl from the Silver Shadow stable who took riding lessons from Patty back in 1989. Patty would take this girl on rides near the stable, and one of those places was the exact location where Joanne and baby Alex's bodies were found. Yet Joanne had told the police four months earlier she had never been to that area and stayed on the main trails surrounding the stables. They had caught Patty in a lie, and not their first either. A dance instructor at the private cowboy club, who had previously given Patty an alibi, suddenly couldn't confirm her attendance for the Thursday in question. 
In fact, Patty didn't sign in the night that Joanne and Alex were abducted. Sign-in sheets are mandatory under the law in North Carolina. The distance between Joanne's house and Patty's house is 510 miles. It would take someone over nine hours to make that drive. If Patty had driven to Joanne's house and abducted and murdered her baby Alex, there was no way she could be back in time for her weekly dance lesson. Patty also didn't have reliable transportation. The only working vehicle she had at the time was a van with a broken axle that couldn't drive over 35 miles an hour. The police had receipts proving it wasn't repaired until over a week after Joanne's murder, which means once Patty arrived in Pennsylvania, she would have had to use Joanne's car for the abduction and murder. That would mean Patty was the person who returned Joanne's car and parked it 50 yards from the Katrinak home. The police theory went something like this. After the phone call on December 12, 1994, Patty was in a fit of rage. How dare this young, pretty girl take the life that was meant for her? Joanne's baby was at the same age that Patty's baby was when he allegedly died of SIDS. Joanne had Andy, and Joanne had Andy's baby. Patty was hell-bent on taking those things away from Joanne. That very night, she drove down to Pennsylvania and for the next two days stalked Joanne. She waited for the opportunity to exact her revenge. By the morning of the 15th, she was ready to act. When Andy left for work that morning, she broke into the basement, waiting for the right moment. She had to have heard Joanne on the phone with her mother-in-law, making plans to go Christmas shopping. After Joanne hung up, Patty cut the phone line. She followed Joanne and Alex outside and at gunpoint forced them into Joanne's car. She forced Joanne to drive to the remote area, near the Silver Shadow Stable in Heidelberg Township. She walked Joanne and her baby into a remote patch of woods and shot Joanne point-blank in the face. Being a small-caliber weapon, Patty wasn't sure it was fatal. Joanne was still alive. The gun jammed, so she used the butt of the gun to bludgeon Joanne until she was dead. Perhaps thinking someone might come by and save the baby, she gave him a chance at survival. She pushed up Joanne's shirt and opened the baby's sleeper and gave the mother and son skin to skin. Then she left his chances of survival in the hands of fate. Fate wasn't on baby Alex's side that day. He perished from either suffocation or exposure. This theory was supported by the fact that Patty's phone line showed zero outgoing calls from December 12th through the 15th. The way that phone records worked in the mid-90s is that only long-distance calls showed up on your phone bill. Local calls inside your local calling area weren't recorded. This was the first three-day period when Patty, who was a talker, didn't use her phone. It's no different than when someone suspiciously turns off their cell phone during the commission of a crime and then turns it back on when they are done. Deviating from your normal course of actions can be both damning and highly suspicious. The police had Andy call Joanne to pinpoint the call that precipitated these murders. Andy. Well, hello, stranger. Patty. Hey. Andy. When did you call Joanne? Patty. Hell, you'd know better than me. I don't know, a week or two before? Andy. I think it was a few days before. Patty. To pinpoint it, I can check my records. Andy, what was the argument about? Patty, she said not to call anymore, and I didn't think anything of it. I think you know I don't have a temper like that, to do anything like that. If I was going to have that kind of fight for you, I think I would have had it a long time ago, Now waited until after you got married and had a kid. That's long gone, over with. Andy, the police have proof you were in Pennsylvania. Patty, they said I was up there? That's funny. They haven't checked any of my alibis down here. I was at dance class at a club the night they disappeared. I was not up there anywhere near that time, and I have more than enough witnesses on that. Andy, then why do the police think you did it? Patty, if they had went to these people the first time they talked to me, I mean, it would have been very simple. But no, now they've waited months and months and months later. They've been a pain in the butt, is what they've been. I just told them they're barking up the wrong tree. They need to find out who the hell done it and stop. You might think I had something to do with this, but I hope they find who done it. Next, the police had to find out if Patty had access to a gun. They began by investigating her most recent ex-boyfriend, Tim. According to the local police, Tim was one of the worst criminals in the area and had done everything short of murder. Law enforcement said he regularly broke into houses looking to steal guns he could sell for profit. When they interviewed Tim, 
They learned something very interesting. Despite Patty saying she didn't own a gun, Tim said otherwise. Patty had bought a little 22 Jennings semi-automatic that she purchased at a yard sale when they were both still together. It was a small gun that fit in the palm of her hand. Patty kept it with her at all times. The two used it for target practice in Patty's backyard, and Tim described it as a piece of junk. It had a tendency to jam after the first use, rendering it useless until you cleared the chamber. When asked when Tim had last seen the gun, he said when he and Patty last broke up, she was pointing it at his head. And of course, the bullet in Joanne's head was from a 22 caliber weapon. Perhaps Patty's gun jammed after the first shot, causing her to hit Patty over the head with it 19 times until she died. It helped to substantiate their theory and matched up with the evidence. The PSP served a search warrant on Patty's house on July 28, 1995. They asked Patty for the gun. She stated that Tim had taken it when he left. They never did find that gun. Without the gun, this case was going to have to rely on what little evidence they did have, which was also their only evidence. It consisted of six blonde hairs recovered from Joanne's car and collected in unconventional manner on post-it notes. The only problem is that they were blonde and Patty was a brunette. The Best Evidence DNA was a relatively new science in 1994. Few people had heard of it, and even fewer understood it. Today we know a speck of bodily fluid can be DNA tested and matched to its proper owner with astronomical results. That wasn't the case in 1994. In fact, to solve this case, the police were going to have to wait almost three years for testing to advance enough to determine the identity of those hairs. As we know, Dr. Jensen from the PSP Forensic Labs kept three hairs and permanently mounted them on slides, noting they didn't have any roots attached. He sent the other three to Dr. Deadman at the FBI lab, who also noted the other three hairs didn't have the roots attached. He also noticed the hairs had a red substance on them that looked like blood. If it tested positive for blood, and the blood belonged to Joanne and Alex, and the hair belonged to Patty, they would have an airtight case. The only problem is that the DNA on the hairs matched to Dr. Jensen, Somehow, Dr. Jensen left his own DNA on the strands of hairs, thus contaminating them. Unbelievably, he hadn't worn gloves when he stretched the samples and mounted them for testing. On November 8, 1995, North Carolina investigators served a search warrant on Patricia Rohr to obtain hair and blood samples. The warrant mentioned dirty blonde hairs, but Patty had dark brown hair. Patty threw a fit that they were taking blood and hair from her when she had never had blonde hair. But what Patty didn't know is that investigators had a picture of Patty from a rodeo event in December 1994 showing dirty blonde hairs with dark roots. Patty had lied again to investigators. Patty's blood and hair samples were delivered to Dr. Jensen back in Pennsylvania on November 10, 1995. Dr. Jensen noted that Patty's hair was similar in texture, if not in color, to three mounted hairs collected from Joanne's car. Visually speaking, Dr. Jensen could not exclude Patty as a possible source for the hair found in Joanne's car. Dr. Jensen then sent three unmounted hairs belonging to Patty to the FBI for advanced testing. In September 1996, the FBI opened a fledgling mitochondrial DNA lab under the supervision of Dr. Joseph DeZeno, who had been studying in it since the early 1980s. This would be the first case in Pennsylvania history where this testing would be used in the court of law. It was very cutting edge for the time. Comparing the mitochondrial results to DNA samples of Patricia Rohrer's blood, Dr. DeZeno could not exclude her as a source for the hair found in Joanne's car. Also, Dr. DeZeno found a very small root attached to one of the hairs, but he couldn't test it without destroying it, so he saved it until scientific advances just a year later allowed for testing. Dr. DeZeno carefully cut the root from the hair and placed it in a glass tube. The results clearly stated... Patricia Rohr is a potential contributor of the DNA recovered from the root portion of the Q1 hair mounted by the FBI to the tune of 1 in 37,000. Currently, we are used to the results in the octillion, but for 1996, 1 in 37,000 was a success. It took two and a half years after discovery for those six hairs in Joanne's car for Dr. Deadman to definitively match them to Patty. The state was ready to proceed to the trial. The Arrest 
On June 24, 1997, Patty Rohrer was in a committed relationship with a Marine reservist. She was also a mother again. She had an 18-month-old child who was the light of her life. It was also the day she was finally arrested for the brutal abduction and murder of Joanne and Alex Katrinak. While Patty was changing clothes that morning, Sergeant Pearson observed Patty rocking her baby back and forth while telling her baby she was sorry. In a shocking moment, Sergeant Pearson allegedly heard Patty say, If I had known I would get caught, I never would have brought you into this world. That statement was tantamount to a confession, and just by hearing it and reporting it, Sergeant Pearson would be promoted to a detective. Patty also allegedly exclaimed, I'm not worried about my clothes. I'm never going to see my daughter again, and I'm going to the electric chair. That same afternoon, a Davidson County Sheriff called a press conference announcing that the death of Patty's first child, Charlie, was being reopened. Ultimately, the investigation went nowhere. However, the press in Pennsylvania would capitalize on this information. The next day, the Lehigh County District Attorney announced he would be seeking the death penalty against Patricia Rohrer. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Trial The trial began on February 2, 1998, at the Lehigh County Courthouse in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Assistant District Attorney Michael McIntyre had a reputation as an aggressive prosecutor and a master showman who hated to lose. McIntyre began his opening statements explaining to the jury that, while it was a largely circumstantial case, it was a methodical investigation rolling out one suspect after another until the only person left standing was Patricia Rohr. He explained that the defense may try to offer Andy as an alternative suspect, but assured the jury that Andy was 100% innocent. He explained how the defendant was the only person with a reason to be angry with Joanne. He went over the collection of evidence and, finding that the car was in the furthest position to accommodate Patty's six-foot frame, proving Joanne wasn't the last person to drive the car. As you may recall, listener, this statement was in direct conflict to the evidence in the police report of the same night. However, the defense didn't object. McIntyre explained how Patty would call Andy throughout the years and that the last time he spoke with her, she got very quiet and angry and hung up on him after he told her he was married and his new wife was pregnant. Joanne had called again in October, November, and December, but was unable to reach Andy until the last phone call on the 12th, just a few days before the abduction, when Joanne told Patty to stop calling their home. Andy remembered that argument, and he knew Patty wasn't the type of person to take that lightly. He knew she would want revenge which is why in the early morning hours of the 16th when his family went missing, Andy called Patty's mom, Pat Chambers, and told her his family was missing and asked if Patty was home in North Carolina. Pat Chambers called him back 10 minutes later, stating she had just talked to Patty and confirmed she was still in North Carolina. Andy was relieved. That meant that Patty couldn't have abducted and killed his baby. However, we now know that alibi was false. McIntyre goes on to say that the motive for these murders is the anger Patty felt when Joanne hung up on her. It wasn't a reasonable reaction, but Patty isn't a reasonable person. He alleged that Patty had an unstable lifestyle that showed her to slip away at any time. Patty was also familiar with Joanne's house, having previously been there, and also familiar with the body dump site. He explained that Patty had no alibi that day, other than someone she was dating, and her mother neither of which could be considered reliable. He said there would be testimony of her calling people and begging and shopping for an alibi that didn't exist. He said that the biggest piece of evidence was the root attached to one of the six hairs in Joanne's car, which was conclusively linked to the defendants through cutting-edge DNA. He ended his closing by telling the jury that he wouldn't be able to answer every question and there would be many holes in the story, but the DNA conclusively links the defendants to the crime. And that's all they really had to focus on. He ensures the jury he will prove his case beyond a reasonable doubt because DNA doesn't lie. Next, Jim Pfeiffer gave his opening statement for the defense. 
He urged the jury to keep an open mind and use their common sense. He asked, Does it make sense to drive from North Carolina to Pennsylvania, a 9-hour and 41-minute drive, to murder two people over a hang-up call? Motive does not exist in this case if you apply common sense. He explained that the phone call where Patty supposedly hung up on Andy had actually lasted 20 minutes according to phone records, and Patty was happy for Andy. He accused investigators of having tunnel vision and focusing on Patty to the exclusion of all others. He said law enforcement purposely dismissed any evidence that didn't tend to implicate her. He told the jury that the hair evidence was an exclusion tool and not an exact science. He told the jury that the prosecution could not tell them that the hair they had was 100% Patty's hair. He also mentioned Dr. Jensen's contamination of the hair and the fact that they used an amplification method that would also amplify the results from Dr. Jensen in the projection. He explained that the mitochondrial DNA testing was brand new, and this was the first time it was even approved for the use in a court case in the state of Pennsylvania. It's too new to know if it's accurate or not. He doubted its reliability. With regard to Patty's alibi, he explained that while Patty didn't sign in on the night of the 15th, she did have people ready to testify that they saw her that night on the 15th. There were also other nights she was there. She hadn't signed in. Not everyone signed in the way they were supposed to. The sign-in sheet is based on an honor system. He reminded them that they had to believe the state's flimsy case beyond a shadow of a doubt in order to convict his client. The state's first five witnesses were Andy, his parents, Joanne's mother, and Joanne's sister, who would all contradict each other's timelines, as well as the timelines from three police reports the night Joanne disappeared. All of their testimony also contradicted what was initially reported in their official statements. However, none of this would matter because the defense never called them out on their inconsistencies. Andy's demeanor on the stand continued to be odd. He was calm and unemotional, sometimes smiling and laughing with friends and court spectators. He also smiled at Patty as if they were old friends. Andy described finding the car and said he didn't want to move it to preserve evidence. Although we know from his police statement that he sat in the car to play detective, but that wasn't brought up by either side. Andy mentioned the low fuel light, which he could only have known if he had turned the car on. When describing the phone call between his wife and Patty, he described Joanne's tone as stern. Andy said Joanne was about as sweet as you could get. It was probably one of the only times I had seen her in that frame of mind. Andy stated that after Joanne hung up, she turned to Andy and said, You really didn't want to talk to her, did you? To which Andy replied, I don't understand why she would call here. Andy stated that when he saw Joanne's car in the parking lot, he had a gut feeling that Joanne might be involved, and that's why he called Patty's mom that night to determine Patty's whereabouts. Pat Chambers said she would call Patty and then call him back, which she did. Unfortunately for Patty, the alleged call with her mother at 3 a.m. was a local call, and therefore didn't show up on either of their phone bills, leaving Patty with another lost opportunity for an alibi. Andy testified that his relationship with Patty started in 1984 and lasted four to five years. He didn't want marriage and kids with Patty. He did admit to rekindling their relationship in 91. However, that was at Patty's insistence, and he was just an innocent bystander. He said when he broke it off, Patty took it with anger and sadness. He last spoke to Patty in April of 1994, when he told her he was married and expecting a child, and she became quiet and depressed. Andy thinks the intruder used a cordless power drill to remove 19 of the 20 screws from the plywood from his basement. He recalled seeing such a drill at Patty's house in North Carolina. During the search, no one could find any drill at Patty's house, or recalling her owning such a drill. On cross-examination by the defense, Andy admitted to putting the screws back by tightening them all with a cordless power drill. Also on cross-examination, defense counsel got Andy to admit that the breakup with Patty was mutual. Additionally, the defense was able to get Andy to admit that he had dated a woman by the name of Donna in between dating Patty and Joanne. He also admitted to cheating on Patty with Donna. Andy insisted that he and Donna briefly dated and it meant nothing. They were each other's best friends. In fact, Donna was also friends with Joanne and had stopped by the house to drop off a gift for baby Alex. Donna also had long blonde hairs, like the hair found in Joanne's car, and she also happened to live four miles away from the body's dump site. However, Andy never expected Donna of harming his family. Andy suspiciously downplayed the relevance of their relationship despite Donna being in the courtroom with him and the two behaving flirtatious and 
overly friendly. The defense took his reaction to discussing Donna as a big win, especially since Donna followed Andy to Colorado and they were now currently married. Next, Trooper Koya testified. On cross-examination, the defense was able to get him to admit that collecting hair via post-it notes was an unusual and non-standard method. He confirmed that Dr. Jensen, a forensic consultant, told him to collect it in this non-traditional manner. The forensics team had made other mistakes as well as including keeping evidence in unsealed envelopes with a chance for cross-contamination. Next, the coroner testified regarding Joanne's injuries. Joanne had been shot in the face once with a bullet nicking her carotid artery. This would have produced a substantial amount of blood. There was also blood from head wounds and her broken nose. The coroner was unable to determine a cause of death for baby Alex. Could have been from the exposure or suffocation. On cross, he admitted he couldn't determine the time of death. The firearms expert could not determine whether or not the shot came from handgun or rifle. Further, he admitted to testing over 75 shell casings from Patty's backyard, where she was known to target practice with her now missing 22 caliber handguns. None of the shell casings matched the bullet that was used to shoot Joanne. Next, the non-law enforcement expert Dr. Jensen, the consultant to the PSP crime lab, testified. Dr. Jensen's testimony came off the least credible. He was not an expert in hair analysis, and we already know he personally contaminated all six hairs with his own DNA. His only training in hair analysis was 20 years earlier, in the 70s, comprising of one-hour classes. Despite his lack of credentials, Patty's lawyers did not object to the court qualifying him as an expert witness. In fact, Patty's lawyers kept referring to him as an expert witness, thus further establishing his credibility in the eyes of the jury. Dr. Jensen admitted to not examining any of the hairs at the crime scene, which he didn't believe belonged to Joanne, Alex, Andy, or Patty. All of those other hairs were discarded. Jensen's report stated that the fingernail found on Joanne's chest differed in size, width, and grooming from Patty's, and therefore wasn't tested despite having DNA attached to it. They knew it didn't belong to Patty as they had interviewed her a week after the disappearance, and she had all her nails intact. Again, the defense didn't challenge this decision not to test potentially exculpatory evidence. Dr. Jensen began to contradict himself on the stand, which the defense failed to notice. He stated upon inspection, none of the hairs had any roots attached. However, according to him, he kept three to mount and sent the other three with roots attached to the FBI. The FBI returned the hairs, stating there was no roots attached and documented this fact in a written report. No one seemed to notice this contradiction in testimony, and no one used this report to challenge the findings. Dr. Jensen admitted to photographing only the hairs without root tags attached. The prosecutor showed the jury the three hairs, which he had mounted. Then he asked Jensen if one of the exhibits was a picture of one of the three hairs. He instead testified that it was three pictures of the same hair, which caused him to have to relabel the exhibits while on the stand. Again, no objection by the defense. In fact, all of Dr. Jensen's contradictory testimony went unchallenged by the defense. So in a case where two separate labs, one from the PSP and one from the FBI, noted there were no roots attached to any of the hairs. Suddenly, we have three pictures of one hair with one root. Hallelujah, listener. We have a miracle. Even though Jensen had only photographed hairs without roots, we now had a photo of a hair with a root attached no one thought to note its significance or challenge its authenticity. There was no mention of the fact that the roots were only found after the PSP received samples of Patty's forcibly removed hairs from the search warrant. The defense seemed more concerned with getting Dr. Jensen to confirm that no horse hair had been found in Joanne's car or on Joanne's body. That was the defense's big win with the witness. It was a very lucky day for the prosecution. Next, Dr. Denman from the FBI lab explained how he had cracked the nuclear DNA from the root that was attached to one of the hairs, explaining how there was a 1 in 37,000 chance that the hair could have only came from Patty. He stated, I cannot say Patricia War is the source of the DNA. I can only say that she is consistent with it being the source. It could be her DNA, but it could also be the DNA of someone else who has the same test results. On the fourth day of the trial, the prosecution called Patty's mother, Pat Chambers, as a hostile witness. Mrs. Chambers admitted to calling around different businesses to see if Patty had visited their establishments on the 15th and could provide her with an alibi. 
She denies the implication she was tampering with a witness and trying to elicit a false alibi. Instead, she stated it was four months later, and since the police failed to establish the alibi Patty gave them a few days after Joanne's disappearance, that she had to play catch-up. Next, the prosecutor asked if it was true she had taken a gun to her older daughter's house and asked her to hide it. Pat told the jury that she worked for the school district as a bus driver. One day, she forgot to leave her gun at home, so she drove to her other daughter's house on the way and asked her to hold it. When asked why her daughter buried the gun, she said she had no idea. Next, Patty's sister Sandy testified. Sandy and Patty had a strained relationship. Although they shared the same mother, they weren't raised together as Patty's mother had abandoned Sandy into the care of her father when she married Patty's dad. In fact, Sandy and Pat and Patty had only recently reconnected in 1995 when Sandy and her husband relocated to North Carolina. Although Patty and Sandy were virtual strangers, Patty did allow Sandy and her husband to move in with her. When things became too strained, Patty asked them to leave. They were currently no longer speaking. Sandy testified that her mom brought her a gun in May 1995 and asked her to hold it because it couldn't be found in her possession as the police were conducting a search down by her lake house. She confirmed her mother was on her way to work when she dropped off the gun. The police had in fact conducted a search of the lake near Pat Chambers' house and the prosecution implied it was to hide the murder weapon. Sandy said later when her husband came home, he wanted no part of a murder weapon and buried it in their backyard. The next day when Pat came by to retrieve the gun, she was mad they had buried it and told her to just give me the fucking gun. When Sandy's husband Steve testified, he stated that Sandy told him to hide the gun because her mom was worried the police would find it. The only problem is that the police didn't search the lake until October 1995, almost five months later. The most suspicious thing about their testimony is that they didn't mention it to the police until one week before they testified. Next, Patty's ex-boyfriend testified that on December 7, 1994, Patty called him to let him know that she had qualified for a national rodeo team event in Oklahoma. Her phone records indicate that she called a lot of other people on this date as well to tell them of her win. Patty was quite proud of her accomplishment. In fact, one of these calls was to Andy and Joanne. That meant the prosecution's theory that Pat called on the 12th wasn't true. According to the prosecution, the timing of the phone call on the 12th was the catalyst to the entire murder. No matter, they'll fix that later in their closing arguments. The defense called Patty Rohrer as their star witness. She briefly went into her background, describing her relationship with Andy. In fact, she thought it was funny and chalked it up to lack of sleep due to a new baby. She said the phone call happened on the 7th and not the 12th, which her phone records confirmed. She denied being familiar with the area where Joanne and Alex were found. Patty actually had a court date hearing on the 12th, dealing with the animal abandonment charges for her horses, so she couldn't have been home to call Andy and Joanne. She went to her alibi, and why she knew she was at her dance class on Thursday night when Joanne and Alex went missing. She also showed the jury phone records, which proved there were also 88 other days that year when she didn't make any long-distance or out-of-the-area phone calls. These records were in direct contrast to the prosecution's assertion that because she hadn't made any calls from the 12th through the 15th, it meant she was in Pennsylvania killing Joanne and Alex. Patty denied abducting and killing Joanne and baby Alex. On cross-examination by the prosecution, Joanne denied that it was her hair and Joanne's car. In fact, she accused the prosecution of framing her, using test results from the samples they took from her via a warrant. She denied being in Pennsylvania on the 12th when she called Andy. McIntyre was an aggressive interrogator, cutting Patty off mid-sentence when he didn't like her answers. Patty cried throughout most her testimony. Despite these tactics, he didn't seem to gain any ground. Closing arguments began on the morning of March 5, 1998. The defense reminded the jury that the murder involved a very bloody crime scene. If Joanne's car had been used in the killing as the prosecution stated, why was the undercarriage clean of leaves, dirt, soil, or signs they had been driven through the woods? Why was there no blood from Joanne in the car? Surely the killer would have been covered in it after shooting her in the face and then bludgeoning her in the head 19 times with the butt of a gun. Why were there no fingerprints, horse hair, dog hair, or animal hair present, given that Patty spent all her time at a stable? If this was a case of fatal attraction, why didn't Patty make a move for Andy? Why did she continue to stay in her current relationship? He asked the jury why Patty's alibi wasn't believed since it was made up entirely by friends and family. And yet Andy's alibi was also made up of family and friends. And yet he was believed. 
He also reminded the jury that the only evidence tying Patty to the car were six contaminated hairs. He also reminded them that the testing didn't conclusively say it was Patty's hair. It just couldn't exclude her from the hair. Hair analysis was also an emerging science at the time. He reminded them of Dr. Jensen's decision not to test the hair in Joanne's hand or fingernail. He also reminded them of Dr. Jensen's decision not to test the hair in Joanne's hand or fingernail with DNA attached because it wasn't consistent with being from Patty Rohrer. He then reminded the jury that Trooper Koya originally believed that the six hairs from Joanne's car looked like they came from Andy, who sat in the car and, quote, played detective and also contaminated the crime scene. In the prosecution's closing, he saw evidence differently. He also delivered his closing arguments with passion, while the defense gave theirs like it was a lackluster middle school book report. He insisted that despite initial reports from the PSP and the written report from the FBI to the contrary, that now all six hairs collected from Joanne's car did in fact have healthy roots attached for testing. Wait a minute. What? The prosecution was now stating facts, not in evidence, about six healthy roots from the defense team, instead of objecting, seems riveted to his every word. McIntyre told the jury this was a fatal attraction. In fact, he made reference to the movie several times throughout his closing. This is the same movie where the test audience insisted that they, quote, terminate this bitch, when it had a softer, different ending. The prosecutor continued to make his closing argument sound like a compelling story about a woman filled with jealousy and rage. This case was a fatal attraction, pure and simple. He said the date and the call no longer mattered. It mattered in his opening statement, but that was 30 days and 100 witnesses ago. Whether it was the 7th or the 12th, the outcome was the same. The bottom line is Patty, filled with anger and jealousy toward Joanne, killed her not only because of the phone call, but because she was old. Yes, listeners, you heard that correctly. In 1994, being unmarried and childless was the end of the world. Patty was 30 years old, which meant her prospects for getting married and having a baby were slim to none. McIntyre also stated that the fact that she no longer had the 22 caliber handgun was just as powerful as if she did have it. Getting rid of the gun showed a consciousness of guilt. Then he turned to the defendant and in his Perry Mason moment shouted, Where is the gun, Patty? Where is the gun? Apparently, the defense was riveted and wanted an answer too, because they didn't object to this outburst, nor did they ask for a mistrial based on these highly prejudicial antics. Then he told the jury to put more reliance on the scientific reports than on the people who testified. McIntyre closed with, Either she is guilty, or she is the most unlucky person who ever walked on this earth. She has the same hair color and length and hair and the same DNA. Even though the prosecution was arguing facts not in evidence, it didn't matter because the defense team again failed to make proper objections. The trial had lasted an entire month, consisting of over 100 witnesses and 200 trial exhibits. After deliberating for less than two hours, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty in the first degree. Now a convicted double murderer, the jury had to decide if they were going to put her to death. The penalty phase was brief, with the jury deciding unanimously life in prison. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Well, listener, this is where our story should end. With an ambiguous verdict, with each of you deciding whether you agree or disagree for yourselves. Either way, Patty was a rough woman who abused animals and murdered women and children. So, who's going to lose sleep over this verdict? Not the prosecution team and, evidently, not the defense team, either given their lackluster performance in a capital murder case. As we know, listener, the case never really ends with a conviction. In one of Patty's appeals, she managed to secure a small shred of hope. In it, Patty's appellate attorney requests that the evidence on Joanne's body be confirmed to still exist, and if so, be released for DNA testing. The appellate judge, after confirming the existence of proving evidence, ordered the following. The Commonwealth shall preserve and not prevent tainting of the following items. The fingernail with the material attached found on the body of Joanne Katrinak. The six hairs found in the victim's car. The hair found in Joanne Katrinak's right hand and the cigarette butt found under her body. The purpose of doing so was in an event a future judge would allow her to test those materials, they would still be available. However, this judge wasn't as interested, and that's how our judicial system works for the most part. You just pass the buck onto the next court and let them deal with it. Well, in 2007, that's exactly what happened. Patty was finally granted the right to have the material on the fingernail tested. She believed this was finally her chance at freedom, However, when the fingernail was sent to a testing facility out of state, it was found to be completely sterile and devoid of any DNA material. Yes, that's right. The DNA material that the previous judge insisted be preserved was suddenly missing. Was this intentional or human error? We'll never know. While disappointed, Patty's appellate team petitioned to have the hair found in Joanne's hand tested in the alternative, but the request was also denied. Instead, the judge allowed Patty to test one of the remaining six hairs that had not previously been tested in the case with new cutting-edge technology. They chose to test the three hairs that had been originally mounted right away by Dr. Jensen, since this would preclude anyone in the lab the opportunity to tamper with them. The out-of-state lab where they were sent discovered a root attached to one of the hairs. During the trial, only the hairs sent to the FBI the second time were discovered to have had roots and those could have been tampered with and replaced with hairs taken directly from Patty at the time. So how could the original mounted hairs be found to have roots attached? This is another question we won't have answered in this case. However, we finally had a result for the allegedly untampered with hair. The test results were found to be 100% matched to Patty. I bet you weren't expecting that, listener. Yes, that's right. We finally have definitive proof that Patty murdered Joanne and Alex Katrinak. Case closed, right? Not so fast. With this case, nothing is ever as it seems. The problem with this result is that it didn't include the contamination by Dr. Jensen. The lab didn't find Dr. Jensen's DNA attached to the hair. We know from the FBI that Dr. Jensen contaminated each hair by adding his DNA. His DNA can't be removed and separated from the other DNA on the hair. DNA doesn't work that way. The result should have shown Dr. Jensen's DNA as well as Patty's DNA. So we have to ask, how can this be the same hair collected via a post-it note from Joanne's car? Never mind the fact that if Patty had killed Alex and Joanne, why would she ask to test hair she in all likelihood knew belonged to her? Nevertheless, with this result, it effectively ended any future chances of appeal for Patty. In a later appeal, Judge Reichley, who replaced Judge Ford after his retirement, stated, even for argument's sake, the state police did tamper with DNA evidence. It is irrelevant. Well, I bet Patty would argue it isn't irrelevant to her. There were other things about this case that were both irrelevant and also pertinent, depending on which side you take. Do you remember the part in Making a Murder when you found out Stephen Avery threw a kitten into a bonfire? 
Patty was cleared of all charges brought against her by the SPCA. Further, the judge in the case agreed with Patty that the SPCA officer held a personal vendetta against her. He even went so far as to issue a restraining order against the SPCA officer for singling Patty out and using her job as a means of harassment. Would it make a difference to know that the same SPCA officer managed to get a few of Patty's clients together to conduct an informal surveillance of her in hopes of catching her doing something illegal? Would it make you curious to know that the surveillance team turned over their notes to Trooper Egan for the dates covering December 12th through the 16th, which covered the pertinent time when the prosecutor alleged Patty was in Pennsylvania, effectively confirming Patty's alibi? Would it trouble you to know that those records were, quote, lost? and thus never turned over to the defense team? Speaking of the defense team, by today's standards, Patty's attorneys wouldn't have even been allowed to represent her in court. In death penalty cases, the defense team have to be death penalty qualified, which neither of her attorneys were, as evidenced by their apathetic performance. Even with all the ambiguous evidence, the truth is that we really don't know the truth, do we? According to a Washington Post article from April 18, 2015, it's likely the FBI gave flawed testimony. Quote, The Justice Department and the FBI formally acknowledge that nearly every examiner in an elite FBI forensics unit gave flawed testimony in almost all trials in which they offered evidence against criminal defendants over more than a two-decade period before the year 2000. Of most significance is that Dr. Dedman, from the FBI who testified on the behalf of the prosecution in Patty's case, was specifically named in this article. On one occasion, he gave compelling testimony that deemed a hair sample to be of Caucasian origin, when later, it was determined to have came from a canine. That's right, the FBI expert in Patty's case couldn't tell the difference between human hair and a dog hair. It was found that 26 of the FBI's 28 examiners overstated matches in favor of the prosecution, and more than 95% of the trials they had reviewed which at the time was 268 cases. The Innocence Project is assisting the government in a review of those convictions. In 14 of those cases, the defendants had already been executed. It almost exclusively applies to cases where testimony is subjective, such as bite mark comparisons and hair comparisons, which are largely considered to be junk sciences now. Peter Neufeld, the co-founder of the Innocence Project, commended the FBI for admitting, quote, the FBI's three-decade use of microscopic hair analysis to incriminate defendants was a complete disaster. It seems that Patty's last hope would lie with an author who was writing a book about her case. That author, Tammy Mao, began her book under the guise of telling the story of why Patricia Rohr killed Joanne and Alex Katrinak. However, in her book entitled A Convenient Suspect, which was used as one of the many sources for this episode, the author comes to a very different conclusion than she originally intended tells the story of an innocent woman serving life in prison for a crime she didn't commit. It isn't based on opinion, but rather evidence gathered during her own independent investigation. During a review of the trial testimony by Mao, she discovered that the forensic lab took 39 hairs from Patty during the search warrant for blood and hair evidence. The author, knowing that only six hairs were recovered from the victim's car, set about accounting for each of the 39 hairs. When Dr. Jensen received Patty's hair samples, the first thing he did was send three of them to the FBI unmounted. Then Dr. Jensen mounted 14 of them for his lab. He destroyed two more by testing them with a solution to determine if they had ever been chemically treated. That was 19 hairs. On August 6, 1996, Dr. Jensen sent an additional 16 mounted slides of Patty's hair to the FBI. That left four unaccounted for. The author concluded that it would take exactly four hairs to frame Patty Rohr, one unmounted and able to provide the 1 in 37,000 match the FBI came up with from their, quote, newly discovered root evidence. That leaves three. It was three hairs that had been remounted to ensure the perfect match conducted in Patty's 2007 appeal. How do we know they were Patty's hair, and not the hair evidence from her car? We know because they didn't contain Dr. Jensen's DNA. We also know because the lab took a picture of them, and instead of blonde, chemically treated hair, the picture showed three perfect brown hairs. Those could have only come from the hair samples Patty was forced to give during the search warrant. If this theory holds true, then the hairs weren't switched accidentally. They were switched deliberately. Could it have been done deliberately, but still done for the quote, right reasons? 
When the lab realized they had contaminated evidence and botched a high-profile case, did they do their best to fix their mistake? It probably seemed like the right thing to do at the time. The term, testilying, has become a common term found in cases where an expert witness or police officer gives false evidence or manipulates evidence in a criminal trial in order to make the case, thus prevent an otherwise guilty defendant from going free. Did the end justify the means? The saying used to be, better to let 10 guilty men go free than convict one innocent man. Somewhere along the lines has become an acceptable and justifiable unspoken practice of our criminal justice system to justify the means. Is this why we have organizations now solely dedicated to overturning these unjust convictions such as the Innocence Project? After the release of Tammy Mao's book, Patty's case attracted renewed interest. In fact, the Innocence Project considered taking on her case, but ultimately passed. The Investigation Discovery Channel dedicated a two-hour special to this case in 2017. Entitled Murder in Lehigh Valley, Keith Morrison Investigates. In it, the prosecutor admits to losing sleep over the retested hair evidence in 2007. So why is Patricia Rohr still in jail? That would be because the wheels of justice grind slowly, listener. And that is when they grind it all. Listener, did the jury get it right? Is this the one case where the husband didn't do it? Or do you believe Patty Rohr sitting in prison as an innocent woman? We'd love to hear your thoughts about this case on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let us know what you think about this case. Thank you for listening. Keep the fire burning.